0: Slice Audio. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Doc Talk with Monument Health. My name is Mark Houston, and joining me is Dr. Ali Zakaria, who is a board certified gastroenterologist and hepatology physician here at Monument Health, trained in advanced interventional endoscopy. Doctor. Welcome to the podcast. It's very nice to meet you. Thank you so much. You it's bet nice to be here. Now, what? Uh, what you you've t- we were talking here a little bit before the podcast started, that you've only been in this area now for fourteen months, right? Yep. You've had quite a journey to get here. You uh, <laughs> University of Jordan. You were then in uh, Michigan, I believe, and then Florida.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm. I'm. I need to know how you ended up here <laughs> in Rapid <Rabbit> City. <laughs> yes. <of> course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what What brought you out? I mean, if, there had to have been mm-hmm. lots of places that were looking for somebody of your abilities. Yeah. So
1: why did you land here in Rapid City? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. That yeah. is true. I started back in Jordan where I did my mid school, and then I did my internal medicine in, in in Detroit area, Michigan, and then I finished my general GI there, and then I moved to Tampa. <laughs> These are huge Florida. cities. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then in Tampa I did my interventional year and I did my you know advanced endoscopy and interventional gastroenterology at a combined kind of program, Tampa General Hospital and Moffitt Cancer Center. And we eventually started looking for jobs. Of course, I got you know the offers from my my training program to stay with them and then go to Michigan and then go back to where I trained and then stay in Michigan. A lot of aspects comes to the decision, right? You know. My my wife is a, a medical oncologist as well, and, and, and she trains in, 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 in hematology and oncology, and she was looking for a job, so we needed a place that can accommodate both of us, mm-hmm. one. Two, we are from, you know, we... we they call us, you know, international medical graduate or IMGs. And we need to certify, kind of, kind of like fulfill certain visa criteria. Oh. And, you know, you look at a place that will be very supportive of those criteria as well. And it's sometimes more difficult to get those in a bigger cities. Right. So we were interviewing in one of the areas that we interviewed in South Dakota. And it was my first time <laughs> ever been in South Dakota. <laughs> and it was in Rapid City. And then, you know, the, the Monument Health team Gladly convinced us, yeah. my wife, you know, happy wife, happy life. Right, of course. So she liked the cancer center, and then I had no choice but say, okay, here we go. It's going to be South Dakota. Well, and you've already lived through a
0: winter, so you know what those yeah. are like here then, too. But I yep. suppose you would have had that in Detroit a little bit. It had to have gotten cold while you were there.
1: They told me the winter here will be different. Right. I don't know, the last winter wasn't different. No, <laughs> I suppose. So do you have a – do? You,
0: why did you get into medicine? Do you have a family? Uh, do you have a family background in medicine, too?
1: Actually, again, a very interesting question because my, my family, no, none of my family was in, in, in medicine. Really? Not a father, not a mother, not my even cousins. I was the first to start the medicine business in my family. So
0: where did the interest come from Where, when you were a young boy? I mean, yeah, is that where so it kind of kicked in?
1: I think part of it in, in, in our, our kind of system in Jordan is a little bit different mm-hmm. is that, you know, you go through your high school and the highest scores will be able to apply to medicine to begin with. And I was fortunate that I had, like, one of the highest scores. You were a smart kid. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) So my highest score put me into that group where I can apply to get medicine. And medicine is very competitive. I mean, in in a kind of a competitive standard in Jordan, the University of Jordan takes only 80 students per year to go to medicine out of 110,000 students. I was going to say, that's a pretty big university. Yeah. So if you want to go by, you know, by, by your scores and grades, you only will be, ha- you know, they only take 80 students in my year when I applied. I mean, again, numbers changes with the years. But right. that year when I applied, they would only take 80. And I was, you know, fortunate enough to be one of those 80. And again, you know, when... When I was doing my high school and all of my studies, I had, you know, I tend to like more biology, science, mm-hmm. more than physics, math and all of these kind of topics. So I thought that maybe I will fit there. And then when I started, our, our our college start with the first year being general, where you do a lot of, you know, basic science and, and all of these kind of things. And I, I excel in, in biology and anatomy. And I felt like I think, yeah, this is why I really want to go. So we, you know, finished my mid school. And I'm glad that I'm Doing what I'm doing. Yeah, just well, fits I, my kind of personality. I can
0: tell everybody that's listening right now that they, by the time you're done, you're going to be very glad uh, that Dr. Zakaria is here. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, what we want to talk about uh, with this podcast specifically is advanced interventional endoscopies. Now, I think a lot of people will know that uh, kind of what an endoscopy is. I think the most famous of endoscopies is a colonoscopy, I believe. Okay. Lots of men know that that's a thing that you're going to have to get starting around 45. But a lot of women get colonoscopies, too, for various reasons. Um, there's upper endoscopies uh, for people that may have uh, GI issues, correct, and and, and others. Yeah. Um, but this one that we're going to discuss is very specific and uh super interesting um because this is going to be endoscopies for people that have altered anatomies and i think that's that's a pretty specific term for 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 this procedure and what you guys do so can you explain kind of just just off the top what what this what an interventional endoscopy this advanced kind of means
1: yeah. So again, endoscopy, as you just mentioned, that we offer endoscopy as a diagnostic tool for a lot of GI complaints, and we offer colonoscopy for both men and women. Right. <laughs> both they understand that at the age of 45. So there's no discrepancies <laughs> here. We want both and all to get their colonoscopy at the age of 45 for screening before if they have any kind of high risk factors sure. for it. But those are the basic things that you really know about endoscopy. And endoscopy is a spectrum from a simple diagnostic tool that we go into your stomach or your colon to get a tissue sample or to look for underlying pathology. But sometimes you might have an altered anatomy, and I'm going to explain some example about what altered anatomy means and why we need to come and be creative of how we can do our standard endoscopy or even the need for complex procedures in patients with that altered anatomy. So when we say altered anatomy, I want to go back into the days before all of this technology happens. So for example in the 1990s, if you have a peptic ulcer or a gastric ulcer disease you used to get a surgery for that. People, this, they this, ga- this just goes back to the 90s? Yeah, 1990s, That's how recent this yeah is. 1990s, 1980s, before we have the acid suppression medication, the strong proton oh, pump inhibitors, Yeah, people will, they come in with a bleeding gastric ulcers, we couldn't treat them with medication, they most probably will end up having a gastric surgery, we call it Billroth 1 and Belroth 2, and, and those will alter your anatomy a little bit so that's something that will change your anatomy another example and and we'll talk more in details about that in in a different podcast which is the pancreatic cancer people who get pancreatic cancer in a certain part of their pancreas they will end up having a major abdominal surgery we call it whipple's procedure where it actually takes part of the stomach maybe the small the first part of the small intestine the head of the pancreas and the connection between the bile duct and the Small bowel will be different, so that is something that will alter your anatomy. Another example: pa- 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 patients who comes with a chronic pancreatitis, chronic changes and scarring in the pancreas, they might end up having a lot of stones where we need to drain their pancreas. So we make a connection between a distal part of the small bowel and their pancreas. So that's what we call it: pancreatico duodenostomy or enterostomy, connecting the pancreas to a small bowel, and that will alter the anatomy. More of that, people who get gastric cancer and they require gastric resection, part of the stomach will be resected. Another example, patients who has liver transplant or liver surgery and they needed to reconnect their liver or bile duct to a new area instead of the first part of the small bowel. And now the most important one, and I I think most people are familiar with this one, which is bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. Now everyone knows that obesity is on the rise. We have the new thing, the new, not new, but has been rising, the new kid in the block and getting bigger and bigger of a problem. You know, back in the days, we thought that you know hepatitis C is the most common cause of liver cirrhosis. Now it's actually obesity. Obesity is the most common cause of a lot of things nowadays, and everyone is attacking obesity so kind of in different aspects to treat it with the new medication that we have. Everyone knows about them, the weight loss medications, the weight loss programs, the bariatric surgery, And the spectrum, again, goes from diet, exercise, medication, dietitian counseling, and then eventually you might end up with a surgery. Right. And Monument Health, fortunate enough that we have a lot of bariatric surgeons who does those surgeries through Monument Health in Rapid City and Spearfish, excellent surgeons. You've met some of them Mm -hmm. over the podcast, and they talked about bariatric surgery in general, what it entails. Yes. But it entails altered your anatomy, change the way that your stomach is connected. The most famous one, it's, which is sleeve gastrectomy, where they cut part of the stomach and, and, and or me doing that procedure, endoscopically suturing the stomach, or actually separating part of the stomach where you keep it as an excluded part and then connect a small patch for the stomach to a distal small bowel to bypass a lot of area of your GI tract right. to enhance malabsorption. So that's the whole concept. And there's a spectrum of those from, you know, just a gastric bypass to a duodenal switch. If someone knows of this term, which is you know the biggest bariatric surgery, where you actually bypass a long segment of, of your GI tract. So when we deal with those altered anatomy, a standard endoscopy become challenging because now you are going to a to an area that is different than what you regularly see, and our scopes are designed to go. As a standard procedure. Right. A standard anatomy. And when you come into a different anatomy, so I have to be creative and figure out a way of how I'm gonna reach that area. For example, if someone got you know the peptic ulcer disease surgery or Belroth, now the, the limb or the small bowel limb that we connected things back together might be longer if you wanna reach it. So the standard upper GI scope might not reach that area and we have to be creative. So we use a pediatric colonoscope, which is More wide in diameter, however, it's longer scope that goes all the way down to do a push enteroscopy or an enteroscopy to look into the small bowel area or to reach the area that a standard scope doesn't reach. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, where my interventional GI comes is that if I have a patient who comes in with altered anatomy and he has or she has gastric bypass, now we have a part of your stomach that is sitting in your abdomen, but it's totally excluded and I cannot reach it. To reach that excluded stomach, I need to go with a extremely long scope with a special devices all the way down and then all the way up to reach that stomach. And even that, in almost 25%, is unsuccessful. And not everyone does those procedures and not every place has those equipments. So even if you have the equipments, you might have not the expertise. And mm-hmm. sometimes I do those procedures. I have the expertise, but right. we don't have the instruments. And it's a very cumbersome kind of procedure. So now we can fine-tune whatever we have to get into that stomach. So I will give you a couple of examples yeah, if you're interested. Please. I'll give you an example of a, a true-life cases that I have been dealing with at Monument Health for these kind of patients. So, for example, in a patient who had a pancreatic cancer, had a Whipple procedure, and now they connected their small bowel to the remaining part of the pancreas, they connected the bile duct to that part of the small bowel, but the stomach is connected to a different area. So now you need to reach that area A regular ERCP scope or a bile duct scope Mm -hmm. or stomach scope won't reach that area. So you have to use a special scope, and you have to kind of counteract that. Maybe you have to use an overtube or a special instrument to reach that area. And even our tools that we currently have, like a bile duct stents or wires or anything that needs to support me doing this procedure is not meant to pass through those scopes so you have to be really creative when you come to these procedures and we have done a couple of those cases and they went pretty successful right. by adjusting our approach and that's when it comes to an interventional gastroenteroscopy and endoscopist rather than general endoscopist mm-hmm. the other example is you know If you get a patient, we will talk about pancreatic cancer in more details, how we diagnose it and how we can deal with it. But if you get a patient who comes in with who had a history of bariatric surgery as a young patient in their 20s, 30s to lose weight and they did really phenomenal and then lost weight and they're doing great. And then now they are in their 50s, 60s. They come in with jaundice, Mm -hmm. yellow discoloration or some symptoms of potentially risk of pancreatic cancer. They get a CD scan and they have a pancreatic mass. How am i going to get to that area right i don't have a regular anatomy to go with my ultrasound scope to find that pancreas and get a sample i need to go to their excluded stomach in order to be able to get to the pancreatic segment to take a sample so back in the days those patients used to go for surgery Mm -hmm. where the surgeon will open their abdomen grab the stomach connected to the skin and let me go with my scope through an open abdomen to find the pancreas and take a sample, or surgically kind of getting a sample from that area, which is very invasive and associated with a lot of morbidity and mortality. Now with the new technology that I have and the new inventions that came out into the field of interventional gastroenterology, we have a special stent that I go with my ultrasound, go into the small pouch in the stomach, and then look with the ultrasound, try to find where that excluded stomach is sitting in the abdomen. I will find it with my ultrasound. I will puncture through a wire, and then through a stent, capture that excluded stomach, and connect it back to the pouch. So basically, I'm reversing <laughs> thousands of dollars yeah, of bariatric right. surgery back to your original anatomy mm-hmm. where I connect the stomach back together. That will allow me to access that excluded stomach, and I can do a lot of things from there.
0: I'm, I'm so I'm just so amazed that all of that is connected so well That you can just take that one scope. I mean, in in, in people that don't have the altered anatomy, to find what you
1: need to find. It just... It just seems too much. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, but guess what? It, it sounds too much for me. But right. for the patient, it's actually exactly the same as they come in the same day. This mm-hmm. is an outpatient procedure. I don't even, even with the altered anatomy? Yeah. I don't need to admit them to the hospital. They come right. the, in as an outpatient. They will get sleeping medication. They they will think that they just got an upper endoscopy like yeah. any other endoscopy. And I go fi- fi- find that excluded stomach, put that stent And then I can do either a single session or stage session where I put the stents in them till that area heals and then bring them back. It depends on the urgency. Right. And I will tell you a couple of stories that we've done in the hospital at Monument with these. And actually, we have fancy acronyms for these procedures. (laughs) This procedure called EDGE procedure. Okay. It's the EDGE or the GATE, which is gastric access to allow or to facilitate for ERCP or US-directed transgastric ERCP. Okay. So we like fancy names. Yes, Edge, of course. Kate, you know, we, we feel good about it. Right. You're
0: not like the military. You love yeah, your acronyms. Yeah.
1: So, for example, you know, a couple of cases that I got consulted to do is someone who had this altered anatomy or gastric bypass, and they come in with what we call it acute cholangitis. So acute cholangitis is an, 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 an emergency in, in GI medicine. You really need to decompress the bile duct. Otherwise, the patient might actually die. The mortality rate is really high in this in particular disease. And before we we had this, you know, availability, patients used to either, as I said, they have to go to surgery while Mm -hmm. they're already septic and sick to open their abdomen, get a scope through that and get, uh, you know, the the testone or the infection from their bile duct or the interventional radiology have to puncture through their skin into their liver, try to put a stent to decompress from the outside. But that doesn't even cure the underlying reason, which is a stone in the bile duct, they haven't been able to take that stone out. So we need to kind of find a way to take the stone out, and that's when you do need to do a biliary endoscopy or ERCP. So now I get a case where they called me that this patient has a acute cholangitis and she has altered anatomy. We need to figure it out. Should we put a PTC drain? And that's where the interventional comes in. I went in, I did the same session, edge procedure, which is finding the excluded stomach, put a stent, go through that stent where I now have a normal anatomy, get that area, find that stone, remove the stone, decompress the bile duct, take everything out, and then come back in a few weeks after that fistula mature. I take the stent out, I remove it, and I actually close, suture or put a clip on the fistula between the stomach and the excluded stomach where the patient actually go back to their altered anatomy. Because the main concern that I have... I spend thousands of dollars to lose weight. I am not going to get weight, gain weight again. So right. if you connect my stomach back, am I going to, you know, start mm-hmm. gaining weight? Am I? I mean, there is a risk of fistula persistence, but we have so many tools or equipments or you know techniques to close that fistula. And all the edge procedure that I have done so far, when I followed up, we we actually follow up closely to ensure that the fistula closes or the connections closes by you know drinking mm-hmm. contrast, in, uh, you know, swallows or images. And all of them, they get back to to their you know normal anatomy of sorry, uh, altered anatomy of bariatric surgery. So that's a single session. Sometimes we do it for a different you know reason. Some people who get acute pancreatitis or acute inflammation in their pancreas, they are unfortunate that they will develop like a a fluid collection. We call it pseudocyst or walled-off necrosis, which is a kind of an infection in a pocket around the pancreas. Back in the days, they used to go to a major surgery to drain it or IR putting drains and risking making a tract between the, the, the pancreas and the skin. I do all of that internally. I put stints inside. They will just go home same day and then come up as an outpatient. No skin incisions, nothing really like that. Everything's from inside. The same day stuff is so
0: amazing nowadays for what you guys can do uh, hearing a procedure like that is i i, I wouldn't i wouldn't think i it, at least an overnight stay in some instances right um what is a, do you do you have one that is is particularly difficult to do is there a specific one that stands out to you that is just yeah. i can do it yeah. but man this is hard
1: yeah so again it's not just hard for me particularly those are the new, again we got to be very honest about these technologies those are new technologies mm-hmm. and those are actually offered in a high volume extremely experienced endoscopist in the tertiary centers like you know Mayo Clinic that we partner with or you know advanced endoscopy training programs those are not introduced into any any community hospital in general most people who even even trained to do these procedures. They don't feel comfortable doing these procedures in a community practice because of the high intensity and the requirements that comes with it. And again, it sounded easier when I say it, oh, we just connected with this Right, right. But the technicality of it is really... All of it's hard. I mean, all of it's tricky. So now, one of these new technologies that we have been doing is, for example, someone who comes in again with a pancreatic cancer, that cancer is invading the small bowel, causing obstruction. So they will come, what we call it, with a gastric outlet obstruction. They are persistently vomiting. Mm. They are not keeping anything down, and and we need to bypass that area. So back in the days, they used to say that, okay, we'll take you to surgery. We'll try to connect the stomach to the small bowel and bypass that area. Or we can put a stent into that obstruction and keep it open. The problem with the stent, it's meant to do, to be done for people who are, you know, should live or expected to live less than six months. But what if you have someone who has a disease that could potentially be managed and he can live longer than six months? Yeah. So the stent might cause more complication on the long run. So you need to have a better kind of planning for those patients. And, and usually that's when we offer a connection between the stomach and the small bowel. Ideally, they should go for surgery to connect it, but sometimes they are not surgical candidate. There's cancer all over the place, and they're not in a good health to go for a surgery. That's where I come in. Again, I of go with the ultrasound scope, try to find this small bowel segment, and try to connect those segments between the stomach and the small bowel with that stent. And we've done a couple of those cases here mm-hmm. at Monument Health, and it went really, you know, uh, the, the the outcomes were pretty excellent, and the patient yeah. went back to their, you know, normal diet. They actually start getting more nutrition, and they could fight the journey of right. pancreatic cancer treatment because if they cannot eat, you cannot feed them. Yeah, how they're going to be able to, you know,
0: get Ex- the treatment exa- for pancreatic cancer? Right.
1: So those are the challenging, and and, and again, the challenge comes with it because when you want to try to get. A target that is actually baseline moving. The small bowel moves in your abdomen. How are you gonna, you're going to be a really good hunter to kind right. of like hunt that segment <laughs> and secure it instead of? And those comes with a lot of unfortunate complication if it goes wrong in in, in the hands of someone with less experience mm-hmm. or who was not really confident or competent in doing these procedures, because you're actually intentionally perforating the stomach twice, right. or the, the stomach and small bowel twice. <laughs> You know, one time to get the stent on one time when you remove the stent. So if you don't really know how to bail yourself or you don't have a backup, you have to have, like, you know, the right indication, the right patient, the right setup, and all the backup plan. So I usually get all my backup plan in the room before even get the instrument for the procedure itself. So well, you,
0: And that kind of leads to the next question and how, how you determine whether a patient is suitable for this or not, right? Yeah. Um, how, 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 how do you do that?
1: I am... Pretty guideline oriented and patient centered care oriented. So I'm not I, I my advice always is that for any endoscopist when they do these procedures, don't think just because you can do it, you should do it. I mean, the sky is not the limit, actually. The sky is the beginning of what interventional gastroenterology is. You can do so many things. I mean, I usually tell them, like, give me a scope, give me a stint, give me a two lumens. I can connect them together. <laughs> I can do a lot of things. Right. But you have to really be really careful about what you should do, what is the best interest for that patient mm-hmm. before you do this procedure. So the first thing that I go is, okay, so what are the alternative options for my procedure? Right. So I just said that. There is, for example, Mm -hmm. that when you have an obstruction, you can have, you know, stent placement, surgical approach, and then my approach. And then you have to present those for the patients. Like, okay, you have this pathology. Those are the treatment options. You present to them the durability of each one of them, the risk of each one of them, and the complication rate that comes with it. And what is... What is their favor? Maybe they will say that, well, I really think that I might you know, get the surgery because it's more durable. I will take some you know, risk. Then you will talk to the surgeon, and the surgeon will tell you, no, I don't think the patient will stand the surgery. Then you go back to another plan, and you will discuss it with the patient. For example, let's say that I get a patient with a gastric bypass who does still, for a reason or another, have their gallbladder. They haven't removed it during their bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. Most people, they remove the gallbladder when they do the gastric bypass because we expect having gallstone disease. So if you have your gallbladder in situ and you come in with a bile duct stone that requires intervention, so those are the cases that I will give them alternative. You will need surgery to take your gallbladder out. I will talk to the surgeon if he is interested well-trained and willing to give me an access to your stomach where we do a combined procedure instead of me connecting your stomach Mm -hmm. back together. I will access that stomach during your gallbladder surgery and take that stone out for them. So I will do my part, he will do his part, and then we'll close you up, and I don't have to do any of my high-risk interventional procedures. And that's something that, again, a, a discussion between you and the patient and the surgeon. And we had a couple of cases where maybe the surgeon is not comfortable giving that access because they haven't done it before. This is a new thing for them. So we will go back. Well, now the alternative is that you either go to a place that they can offer a combined procedure or if they want, they can do your part with removing your gallbladder and then I will take over for my part as well. So I give all the options for the patient. And my target will be what can we do to get the least invasive approach for you. And I will give you another example that we just had you a know, few weeks ago in our hospital. A patient had a duodenal switch which is the major bariatric procedure that they do. Okay, And there is no way by endoscopy that we can go to that area. Even if I think that I can connect two small bowels mm-hmm. together, which is I can, I don't know where I am connecting. Am I going to be connecting into a length enough that I can reach that segment or not? So what we ended up doing is I did a multidisciplinary discussion with high risk you know, interventional radiologist, a pancreatic surgeon, another interventional gastroenterologist who does these procedures, as a second consultant from from a different actually health system just to run the Mm. case by them. And then the consensus was, okay, so I will actually get access to that area through the skin, through the abdomen, where the radiologist will give me an access. I will scope them through their abdomen, not through their mouth, go into their bile duct, go into the small bowel, take a sample from that area, and then keep it drained from outside because this is the least invasive. The other option is going to be a major surgery. They have to go to their abdomen. They have to open their small bowel. I don't know if they have a leak or a complication from it. And we actually got very successful with getting a diagnosis for that particular patient with the least invasive procedure. So that's what my target is. How can I give you my skills, a set of skills, in the least invasive right. approach for that patient?
0: So then what key takeaways um uh, or, you know, just general advice do you have for people that may need this from you?
1: Of course. I want to actually extend this advice for those patients in, in in a different way. The field of gastroenterology had, you know, developed significantly over the last five to ten years. The amount of things that we can do endoscopically to avoid surgical intervention is tremendous. We can remove a lot of things endoscopically, same day. You come in in the morning, you leave in the evening. I can do a full thickness resection of certain part of your bowel without you needing a hemicolectomy. I can close a perforation that, you know, by suturing without you going and losing part of your colon or your body or your stomach. Um, and again, it's a case-by-case case thing but the the field is expanding and even, unfortunately, some gastroenterologists they don't even know about these kind of things if they are, haven't been keeping up with the new technologies. Primary care physicians sometimes they are not aware that even this exists. The surgery team usually think that this is surgery. We don't know if there is any way that gastroenterologists can do that. The culture that I have introduced is with collegial kind of communication between our surgery team and our you know local hospitalists and, and internal medicine through Monument Health. They've been very open-minded and they have know, seeing the new things and they are all kind of mind blown about, oh, we can offer this. So if we have any case before we make a final decision, let's ask our interventional gastroenterologist if he can add anything. And they will be surprised 90% of the time I can actually make a difference and make it a very minimally invasive procedure. So I want to send a message to the patient who has altered anatomy for whatever reason Mm -hmm. that we mentioned. And there is way more than what I mentioned. But if you have altered anatomy and you've seen someone who pushed you to go for another surgery... The first question is that, ask, is there an alternative that will minimize my risk? Is there something that I can do endoscopy? Is there... Is there something that I need to see someone else for? And there is no shame of that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I offer all of my patients, when they hear all of this, I use the diagrams. I, I explain them, you know, things to them in, in a very straightforward because it's a complex procedure. I right. make it as simple as it can. And at the end, I was like, I don't want you to give me an answer today. There is no urgency. Go home. Think about it. Look up the, the data. If you want me to get a, another consult, I am more than happy to do that. The last thing that I want is that, God forbid, you run into a complication that you won't—I won't forgive myself if you got in a complication that we could have done something different. Right. And that's the message for everyone, that don't—not because you just know how to do it, you should do it. You should just get what is the best for those patients. And always there's an alternative. Back in the days, I know that most people, they know that big polyps, if you go in and do a colonoscopy, oh, you have a big polyp, we're going to send you to surgery. People used to lose their, you know, part of their colons for a right. for an inch and a half or a small, I can remove nine centimeter polyp now, like five Jeez. inches polyp from your colon if it's benign, not malignant looking, and you go home same day. You don't really need to lose your colon for, for a polyp anymore. So this is the same message. You don't really need to go for a major surgery to reverse an altered anatomy to get a diagnostic or therapeutic intervention. Right. I need a cooperative patient, correct (laughs) indication, correct kind of setup. Yeah. And, you know, understandable kind of situation where we can get a scope, stent, and two lumens to connect together.
0: Well, since you said there's no shame in any questions, um, on a personal level, coming up, I will be having uh, an endoscopy and colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. And I found out those are things that can happen at the same time. Yes. This That's is a, yeah, crazy. Yeah, I will tell <laughs> you. Me. I mean, I will tell you.
1: So endoscopy, upper endoscopy and colonoscopy is, we do, we do use different scopes. Just kind of like, we don't use <laughs> that. <so. laughs> we don't put that. We start right. with the upper part, not the lower perfect. part. So we do different scopes and we, we, we start with the upper, then the lower. And then when we do the endoscopy, unfortunately, the, the health system sometimes can dictate how things will go. Sure. Um, in general, I, again, personally favors the patient's kind of targeted uh, approach. And if the patient needs both procedures at the same time, mm-hmm. that is one lower risk of, sec- you know, second time anesthesia, lower risk for, you know, a need for another intervention or a day right. off or, you know, all of these right. things. In certain situation, and I'm not saying that's the norm or in certain, you know, when, when when politics and, and reimbursement yes. and coverage kicks in, the insurance will pay you half of the other procedure mm-hmm. if you do it on the same day. So people will say, it's like, I'm doing the same amount of job. I'm doing the same taking the same amount of risk. Why am i am doing both procedures at the same day? Right. And they, they will talk to the patients like, okay, we'll look up and then see what we find and then we'll do other procedure. I don't think most of our gastroenterologists mm-hmm. in town practice this way. We already, you know, mm-hmm. patient centered and we would make the best out of it for the patient. So, believe it or not, I sometimes do four procedures at the same day, same session. Oh, if I know wow. that the patient needs an upper endoscopy, they need an ultrasound, they need an ult, you know ERCB mm-hmm. to take a stone out, and they are due for their screening colonoscopy, and the only way that I can convince them to do it is by, okay, you're getting one procedure. Let's get a quadruple kind of things four in one. I cannot <laughs> right. give you. I know, do three, you will get a colonoscopy for free. And that's not going to happen for A punch card <laughs> for Monument
0: Health? Perfect. I know.
1: So we offer all of them to kind of limit the day off, limit the convenience. And, and, and one of the things that was very surprising to me, and I want to say that out and, and, and very humbling, to mm-hmm. be honest, is that, When I joined, you know, I lived in a metro Detroit area or in Tampa, big cities. There's a lot of availability. You would rarely see someone travel three hours, five hours, 400 miles to come and see you. Right. And then I come in and people are driving four hours to come and see me. So humbling. And I was like, okay, I need to modify even my practice to accommodate those patients. So I will actually board them for a procedure the next day. So you come and see me in my office. If you need a procedure, it's going to happen next day. So you don't have to drive twice if you can stay overnight. And then we can do the procedure. And if you decide right then and there, I don't want to do the procedure, I'm more than happy to cancel. It's easier right. for me to cancel than adding you to my schedule. So, you know, serving that kind of a community will always keep you humble. And it was like, I don't want to hurt this patient because if this patient is going to drive four hours and God forbid something happens, I will I will not forgive myself by right. any harm for those patients. So being very protective for your patient population is is is, is, is a key.
0: Well, and for some odd reason, we like to live far apart Yeah, yeah around here. I don't know why,
1: yeah, <laughs> but we just true. like
0: to live great distances. Uh, well, Dr. Ali Zakaria, thank you for stopping in and talking about all of this. I can tell you're passionate about it. Yeah. And I think from uh, the doctors that you see specifically at Monument, that's exactly what you're hoping for. I want a doctor that's passionate about what they do, and it comes across in you. So thank you, so you much. bet. Thank you. thank you very much for talking with me, doctor. Doc Talk with Monument Health is recorded live at Home Slice Studios, hosted by Mark Houston, edited by Russ Hatton, engineered by Chris Jaquis, and produced by Kelsey Kinney and Rob Henry.